This is the Personal Finance Show. I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. Since he was 20 years old, Richard Petty dreamed about being president of an NBA basketball team. In November of 1996, his dream became reality when he was offered the job of president of the Toronto Raptors. In 1998, the Toronto Maple Leafs bought the Raptors, and Richard became president and CEO of Maple Leafs Sports and Entertainment, or MLSE. Richard ran MLSE for 14 years, and for six of those years... I work there as event accountant in the live entertainment department, or as we like to say, the E in MLSE. What I remember most about Richard was that he always seemed very approachable. He was always very appreciative of our work in live entertainment and probably the biggest fan of the company band, which I was lucky enough to be a part of for six years. I got to play on stage at the Air Canada Centre several times, and one time I even got to do a live performance with Alan Frew from the band Glass Tiger. I doubt that any of this would have happened if Richard didn't approve. Richard taught me the importance of having a vision and values in business, but also in the rest of your life as well. Knowing my core values helps me feel confident about big decisions that I make. And I believe it's important that when you're applying for a job, that you make sure that at least a few of your top values align with those of the company. Since retiring from MLSE, Richard has written two books. Dream Job is his autobiography and takes you through his journey in detail. 21 Leadership Lessons is his second book, and though at first you might think it's a book reserved for business leaders, after reading it, I realized how applicable these lessons are to everyone. I wanted to have Richard on the show because I believe his lessons about values, leadership, integrity, and yes, even thank you cards are important for everyone to hear and can be applied to your personal life as well as your career. Today at 71, Richard is a passionate city builder and philanthropist. He's active on Twitter and he regularly writes posts on his website forabettertoronto.ca. I feel very fortunate to know Richard and grateful that he agreed to host me in his home for this interview. It was probably, you know, as a young person, early teens, Literally, my brother and I started a little lawn cutting business. Mm -hmm. And by that, I meant we had about four customers and we'd bicycle over to the person's house and we'd cut their lawn. I think if we did the trimming, it was $7. And if we didn't do trimming, it was like $5. Because trimming is way way more intricate, right? Well, it was extra work. It was more polish, I guess. And we did that. I unloaded box cars. I washed cars. I, my one of my neighbors had all girls, so he didn't have a son. So I'd be his caddy. I'd wash his car. Wait, and box cars? So this Are, is tra- like trains? A uh, box cars? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. And this is yeah. so what you do is you're in Windsor. They, yeah, this be Windsor, and uh, you know one of my friends would call me up, and there'd be three or four of us, and we unload a box car full of silica sand or sure. god knows what but it was dirty and each bag probably weighed 20 pounds or something okay. maybe maybe more <clears throat> you're pretty exhausted by the end of the day and i'm doing stuff for my first paid job real job was a dollar an hour okay a dollar an hour <laughs> and my check for one week prior to christmas was an envelope with 52 dollars in it oh nice and uh, i joked that that was the least amount of money I ever made per hour till I wrote a book. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I, can you even measure the the well, no, uh, you as can. a as an author? You know, my first book I got an advance from HarperCollins and and I got speaking gigs and stuff like that. And my second book I self-published and covered the cost of an editor and printing and all that stuff. But no, I haven't even tried it. I, I think you talk to authors and they'd all tell you the same thing. It's not a great return on your on your money. But I didn't do it for money. I did it because I thought I had a story to tell. Some people have these like ideas when they when they're first like when they're young and they're writing about the ideas, but you can't really write a story about yourself until you've lived. A well, you know, bit, naively, right? I can remember I was a brand manager in the 70s with the likes of Colgate and General Foods and I thought I was kind of to put it in the vernacular hot shit. I thought I should write a book. Well, I mean, how naive is that? I mean, I think even then I realized it was naive. But later as I got into my career, I really thought there was a book there. And and that was one of the things I planned to do. And and finally, Dale Lastman, if you remember, he was on our board uh, with Larry Tannenbaum. And he's the, the chair of Goodman's, a very fine law firm in Toronto. He finally says, well, are you going to do it or not? And I'll <laughs> introduce you to Michael Levine, who works at the firm and who's arguably one of the best literary agents in Canada. And so I needed to push, but it was on my agenda. As I went through my career, it got closer on the horizon. Well, not everybody can write. You might have a story to tell, and maybe you tell it around, but not everybody actually has the, the chops to just write it all down or even tell a story, which is well, really it, what you were doing in your first book. Well, I, there's a great author uh, named Noel Tishy who thinks leaders should have values, ideas, energy, edge, and a, and a teachable point of view. Yes. You know, I joke, one of my, I, I'm still in touch with one of my high school girlfriends. Okay. And uh, Donna, and she, you know, she's happily married in Windsor, but we still, we joke, she was an English major, taught English at high school. I was the guy who got C in English, and we laughed that I'm the one who's the best-selling author. Well, yeah. So right? so even my first book, I, I was smart enough, talk about business and doing the right thing. If you're going to write this book, get someone who's been there, done that. And I hired a fellow who had written eight books. And I like to say I wrote 93,000 words and he made them literate. Well, maybe you've heard of this service. Uh, in the, I think it's in the States. It's called, I think it's called Book in a Box. And what they do is they, they would come to you and you have all these ideas, but you don't have the time. Say you were still working, oh, really? right? If you were still working, you'd be like, I have all this stuff. And you kind of just like dictate all the stuff to them and, and they, put it, they put it all together for you. Well, do you know, I, I meet all kinds of people who say, I've always, want, I'm going to write a book. And, and it's like, like anything in life, you have this objective and many people never have enough energy and initiative to ever act on it. And so I hear that all the time. And, and they also very naively, once again, coming back to the finances, they don't know what's involved with it. Mm. It's, it's, you know, you go to HarperCollins or any of the big publishing houses and they'll want to, uh, okay, what's your concept? Uh, give us uh, an idea of what's going to be your number of chapters, what's in them, who's your competitors, who's your target group, write a full chapter to see how good you are. Mm. So writing a book, unless you have the money to just go out and hire someone to help you, is not an easy thing to do. A book in a box, I don't think it's cheap. I think they might start at like twenty. Actually, it's an interesting idea. I mean, yeah. they now do you know dinners in a box where you get all the ingredients and it, you make them. It's the same so concept, they, right? Yeah. Like mentor in a box, you get yeah. a whole bunch of books sent to you, and and actually people make specialty boxes. There's a whole company I forget the name of it now, but they they will put together. If you had a custom box, like if somebody's like, I want all the Richard Petty things, 
you know, here's a book Richard likes, here's a recipe with all of the ingredients for the, his mm -hmm. favorite meal. Like you could put together a box and just send it to your friends at Christmas. And now, it's a very so, unique So uh, what you idea. get now with a lot of authors, they, like Patterson, who's a, a lot of, I used to like his early books. He has so many people working for him now. Mm -hmm. You wonder who's writing the book. And also, he's turning in a book like every two months. A good author can't do that. Kind of like an executive chef, right? I mean, yeah, they I don't think actually right. do the cooking. I think that's really good. Right? I mean, they have the, well, or like the uh, CEO of a company, right? I mean, you're overseeing everything, but you're not actually absolutely writing right. all this stuff absolutely together, right? right? Yeah. So it's at, at a certain point, uh, maybe Patterson uh, they, or Stephen King, maybe they deserve these. Stephen King, I just read his newest book. He teamed up with his son. So how much, it was a great book. It was mm -hmm. very Stephen King, yes. but how much of his son was there? If it was, his son did a lot of it, he's going to probably have a nice career. Not as big as Stephen King, but he'll, he'll have a good career when his dad finally retires. Well, he learned from the best. Yeah. So no money, no money in books. It sounds like negative money to start anyway, right? You know, it's, it's a time. love and, and it's a voice. And, you know, so now after writing my second book and I was with Ben McNally, who runs Mc, Ben McNally Books on, on Bay Street. Okay. Yeah. I was at an event last night at the library because uh, I'm a big library supporter. And he said, are you going to write a third book? And I said, at Christmas time, I was thinking about it because I was thinking about writing a leadership book on urban leadership. Mm, yes. uh, and I was going to do it. If I'd run for mayor, I was going to come up with a book at the same time I announced my candidacy, but I, I passed on that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's not for everyone. And now what I do is I get my kicks from writing. I, I write, you know, a thousand word uh, blog pretty much every week. Yeah, I mean the the, the website's uh, forabettertoronto.ca. Mm -hmm. So forabettertoronto.ca, it's got basically a, it's a book already. It I is. Mean, it, in fact, if I'd written a third book, I would have just, just yeah, there yeah. were chapters on well, advocacy and vision and yeah. values, and I read that and I go, man, that's 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 better stuff than I was writing three years ago. A lot of bloggers will look at their site and say, I have a book already here and it just needs to be organized. And a lot of times people will just make a book like that has the same same thing, yeah, just I, make a I, different version. I don't rule out that, you know, you never say never because, you know, I said after I wrote my first book, I was traveling from coast to coast uh, giving speeches. And when someone meets an author, in addition to wanting an autograph from them, they, they don't know what to say to you. I love your book, blah, blah, blah. They'll say, um, are you going to write another book? And my answer was, no, no, one and done. I'm the Kentucky Wildcats. I, all these young kids play one year for Coach Coach Cal and and then go on to the pros. I'm one and done. And you talk about that in your second book. Yeah, and you know you what? Had, you had to address that in yeah, your second because book. because there I was saying that. But So I never, you never say never. Yeah, never say never. So back to the time when you did have money, uh, $52, <laughs> what, what did you do with that? What, what did you do with the money when it came in? Do you, do you recall? Would you, are well, you like, put it in the same, I got a bank book. I did, I did have a day. bank book at TD. Okay, yeah. And uh, I did that so I'd have, have money to buy Christmas presents. Okay, so this is... So it was like I put in a dollar a week. I put in a dollar a week. <laughs> oh, a dollar a week okay. And, and I can remember the TD branch that I did that on. And actually, I got to... I was a TD customer for a long time because of that. Mm. But I can remember that $52 check. I bought a... I remember a shirt I bought. I think it started with a V, the brand name. And I bought that. I thought that was pretty cool. But I, I, I had no dads. 
So it's not no, like not I paid off time. loans. This is a, you're, you're younger than a teenager? Well, right now, my first job was about 18. Yeah, okay. So my, yeah. Da- my dad basically said, you can cut lawns and wash cars, but once you turn 18, you get to have a real job. And that, that was a Christmas job. And then the summer, I started working at, you know, the likes of Coca-Cola and stuff like that. So when did you go to school? Did you go to, you went to the University of Windsor, right? I went to, so what, 64? Five, I was 18 years old when I went to University of Windsor. Okay, so and uh, how how does one pay for school at that? At well, that time? at that time, you know, my dad paid for it. Okay, yeah. Uh, so you know, uh, a tuition was not even five hundred dollars, and and books weren't the crazy book prices they are today. Yeah. So I went the monkey in that wrench or whatever the expression <laughs> is. I'm not even sure now. Yeah. Uh, my dad died remember. when I was 21. Oh. So I'm in second year business. Oh, no. Second year business. While well, you're in university. Yeah, while well, I was in university. My oh. mom didn't work. And it really, you really grow up quickly. So what I started doing, I got out, I got student loans. Okay. Uh, Did they have OSAP or yeah, something? Yeah. Like, like that program was established at I the time? I can't remember the acronym. Something similar. But right? I got a student loan because I sure qualified. No revenue in the house. And my mom went out and got a, uh, you know, she hadn't worked all through her marriage. She got a job. But now my brother Tom and I are on our own, basically financially. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I borrowed money and I, I worked for Air Canada. I, I worked for Air Canada in the summer at the airport as a passenger agent. And then in my final year of university, I they brought me to Montreal to work in uh, sales promotion okay. at Placeville Marie. So I was doing that. I was uh, doing part-time. So I was working in the wintertime as a sales agent for them. I was refereeing basketball games. I was doing stuff for money. And I graduated with probably about $1,200 worth of debt, far less than students today. Oh, yeah. And then I just, I worked really hard to, and it goes back to my philosophy. Like I didn't like debt. Yeah. So I just worked hard to eliminate that as fast as I could. I think people who have that philosophy are actually quite lucky early in life because if you don't like that, you're going to pay it off. But if you don't have any opinion on debt, then, you know, something maybe you'll just spend and spend and then it, it well, kind of catches up to you. It's a very siren call, isn't it? I mm. mean, you can max out on credit card. You can, my first credit card was a, was a, was a gas credit card. Basically, the I graduated in 1970. I got a credit card. You know how they send them to graduates? Mm-hmm. I don't know if they still do, but they sure did. They then. give you them to you first year. That's right. So I get that credit card, and I remember I filled up with a tank of gas in Guelph. I was visiting a good friend in Guelph, and yep. I think it was like $6. I don't think I used the credit card again. And really? the moment I got it, I paid off the $6. Yes. And I don't think I ever used a credit card That's again. Well, I, mean, I was so adverse to debt. And so it was never a siren call for me. I'm not going to max out three cards. And uh, yeah, I, I, the biggest debt I had was on a house and that was huge, but then I wanted to pay it off. So I was never, yeah, I, did I borrow? I probably would have borrowed for my first car. Probably it was a, uh, Toyota Celica. It was about $33,000. Well, these are the common things, right? Yeah, People borrow but, for but house I was and not, car. you know, like if there was no credit check like you can do now, uh, I'm sure my credit would have been excellent even then. Do you have an idea of why you were so debt averse? You know, my family was a hardworking family. My dad uh, was blue collar, uh, grade 12 education. My mother was grade nine education. We had a little post-war house in Windsor. We ate, you know, liver and eggs and low-cut 
cuts of meat. Ketchup, and, my mom and, says ketchup sandwiches. Well, we didn't uh, go that low. Okay. But we, listen, a big, big lunch for me was hot dogs and beans. I loved hot dogs and beans. It was just you and your brother? Yeah, my sister. And your sister. My sister. And she moved out, uh, you know, when I was younger. So to, you had five in the house at some point? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I think they were frugal. And, you know, I don't really remember money being an issue. I don't, I mean, if, if money was an issue in my family, they kept it from us. But I know that I dated a, a gal and, in high school and she lived in the Walkover of Windsor and her dad was, you know, worked for Chrysler's and he wore a tie and, and, and they were rich to me. And, yeah, and sure. there was us. so I think that just whole appreciation for money that being frugal somehow seeped into me when I was a young, young child. That means something to people, right? And if it doesn't mean something to you, then it's not a thing. So when somebody says, here's a credit card, you're like, okay, good. I can get what I want. You don't think about the consequences until they actually occur and you're like, wow, I bought one thing and now it's doubled in interest. Well, I see today, you know, we eat out all the time. It's awful, uh, especially in this neighborhood uh, where I live. And there's so many good restaurants. I see young there people are. and man, I, I, I know what this dinner is costing me and I'm seeing the yes. drinks they're ordering and the steaks they're ordering. And I'm going, wow, I wonder, I would love to know what they're, I, I actually think about it. I would love to know what they're, their credit cards look like. And I'll bet they're paying the minimum each month. And, and, and do they know what the interest rate is? And I, I don't know what the interest rate on in credit cards are. They used to be like 28. Are they 18 or something? They, uh, they can go up as high as 28. Yep. Uh, probably a department store card, right? Uh, an average would be probably about 19, 20. If you have a good one, maybe it's closer to 10. But still, any of those, they are compounding like crazy. And th this is, this is why I do this show. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they're, you're right. Some people don't even know. And here's why they don't know because they think it doesn't matter. They're going to get the paycheck next week and they're going to keep getting a paycheck or win the lottery or win the lottery, <laughs> which is what everyone <laughs> seems to, seems to want. It's, I think it's the number one uh, retirement saving strategy <laughs> in Canada. It's, it's win the lottery and number two is RSPs. The truth is, and as you said uh, a few times in podcasts, there is no job security. Not today. More, more, especially for young people. You know, when I graduated from the University of Windsor, there was 80 of us. And it, we're a typical bell curve. Even though we're, it's an honors BCom program, there are stars in the class. There's the like a bell curve. There's a, most of the people in the middle. But there were, there were underperformers. And even though they graduated with the BCom... And, but we all got jobs. We all got pretty good jobs. And, and my starting salary was $8,300. And okay. I was one of the highest paid because I had this Air Canada uh, experience. And there was probably some at $7,300, but they all got jobs. Today, I spend a lot of time at a university. They don't know if they're going to get a job. Colgate and Procter and Gamble came on campus to interview me. No one does that on a school like the University of Windsor. So, so it's tougher to find the jobs. They don't have the job fairs anymore. Do they well, still they have do, job fairs? But they're, they're not, not the same. They're not going with interviews. They're not. They they're had like, a job. Check this had a huge job fair, but it, it's still not the same. I mean, Procter and Gamble and and Bell and stuff came right to campus, and all I had to do was show up and be prepared and interview. And and now you have to chase it. So. The jobs aren't out there. And if you do get a job, it's often on contract without the benefits. And then there's no certainty because companies are being bought and sold and merged and, and disrupted. And, and so these same people who are maxing out on credit cards don't have the job security I, I had. I mean, I, I worked for 41 years. I never got fired. 
I never got laid off in 41 years. Now, that's pretty rare today. Mm. My brother, my brother had an awesome career, but he got let go twice. And um, uh, so, you and think it's a lot of luck? Uh, like some, well, some, I, not I think a lot, some but luck some luck. It. No, I think there's some luck to it. I was at the right place at the right time. I mean, I was interviewed on TSN one night, and and uh, and after the interview, I heard the announcer say. You know what? If a nuclear bomb goes off, I want to be standing beside Richard Petty. <laughs> so. But it's it sounds like you put a lot of a lot of work in. Like I mean, you talk about work life balance uh, and how uh, millennials want work life balance. Do you feel like you had work life balance, especially like say the seventies, eighties, nineties, when you're building this all up? Well, the seventies, we think we worked hard, and actually, when you think about it, we didn't work hard at all. Really? No, no, not at all. Yeah, things were much easier. I mean, I sold post cereals and every year the cereal market in volume grew at 5% a year and revenue grew up even faster because we had passed on price increases of three, four, five percent So you've got 10% coming in every year. No matter what. Almost no matter well, what. No matter what you do. And I sold, I sold products like Dream Whip and Tang and Jell-O and it was the glory days of those businesses. And uh, you talk so, about Mad Men in the book. It's kind of like, and are you, you say you were smoking a pipe. I smoked a pipe. Yeah, <laughs> everyone is smoking in the. Well, was it really in the like Mad Men? Is that well? No, because I wasn't on the advertising. Not you weren't in an ad business. No, I was, but, but but you know, I it it was just a different time. It's much much tougher now, and so work life balance. I sure had it then. When I switched into uh, my first presidency, which was. Costas. I chose to be on the road a lot. Mm. I really, it was a drugstore delivery business, trucks delivering potato chips to yeah. Max Milk. They have to be all over Canada. Fresh, fresh. And thing, uh, right? I just thought things changed so quickly that I thought, and I, because I didn't know the business when I first got promoted to that job, I figured I should be on the road. After that, I went to Pillsbury, but then I went to Skydome and that job, being you, being in the entertainment business, you yeah. know that you work all day and then you work at night. That's you it. Know, your, your building is dark. You failed. And so you'd be there. I'd start the day at 8 o'clock, and I might not be out of there to 11. And then, then, then I went on to Maple Leaf Sports, and the same thing. I would do 100 to 150 events at night. Sure. I didn't do many concerts because you and Patty Ann well, had we, it so well controlled. We took care of it. That, yeah. That's cool. Like I, didn't have to, I, I went to where the problems were and the opportunities were, and Patty Ann was nailing the opportunities. Well, that brings us to vision and values, yeah. too. The thing I liked a lot, the thing that I always remember is about the, the values, especially at MLSC, was you look at the values and they tell you what to do. Absolutely. Right? And you, you talk about this a lot in your books. But the, the Excite the Fans one, right? Yes. Because there, like, there's so much going on in an event with 20,000 people, or at the Skydome, more than that. Yeah. And someone can't be like, hey, Richard, what do I do? Or even, hey, director or manager, what do I do? No, hey. you got a, a good company empowers its employees. Yeah. And I remember, you know, if, if an employee saw someone drop their popcorn, go get them a new popcorn. You know, I used to say, excited every fan, everyone was empowered. The only thing I said was we only have 214 parking spots below, below, uh, uh, Air Canada Center. You cannot give away a parking spot. <laughs> You're empowered tough. to do pretty much all. You can comp a ticket. You can comp a meal. You can buy them a new pop. You can solve the problem. I'm not there to do. If, if, if our employees have the right values and, and one of our values was to excite every fan. And, uh, and, and another value was inspire our employees. Mm -hmm. One of the best ways to inspire them is to trust them, to empower them. That's why we did it. I didn't, I didn't realize this till I, I worked for the last 12 years, but 
uh, values are important, personal values as well. Oh, right? absolutely. So when you came up with the values, uh, the vision is win, basically, yes. right? Yep. Uh, so, and I always got this wrong. I, w- I always used it. I said visions and values. I, I thought they were all one big lump thing, mm-hmm. but I, I recognize now from reading your books that the vision was to win. The vision is the what, and the values are how you're going to do it. Okay, yes. And, and so, the win is on and off the playing field. Yes. So win, yeah, win, which is expanded to yeah. on and off the playing yeah. field, because for me, who I was in live entertainment, a lot of the stuff that applied to the teams didn't really apply to me, right? Uh, so I was like, okay, the teams win, that's fine, but how does that apply but, to my but job? But you, you wanted to do 60 concerts a year. That's right. You wanted to be recognized. Instead of doing two shows, the person's going to want to do three shows at Air Canada Centre. Yes. You want the pole stars and stuff to recognize you. You want to hit your budget because everyone was on a bonus plan based on profits. That's right. Uh, so, And we had a lot of internal awards, you know, Player of the Month and the All-Star team. I just walked past today because <laughs> I, I, I came into Union Station yeah. today and I, I was like, oh, I'm going to go look up at the board. And there's a CARE award now. I think it's a new one. Yeah. It's, not- about, it's probably about, a, it's a community-based one, I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, I well, one of our things was to be leaders in the community. That was our fourth value. And the one I always forget because it has to do with teams is dedicated to our teams. That's right. <laughs> and that was building practice facilities and the best coaches and the best uh, uh, psychologists and the best food and all of that. But and that's about build, also building up the city too, right? It's like It's right. like those ones, like you build things for the team, but really it's like... You're, you're making jobs. You're making a, what the, does a, would the practice facility be used as a community? Well, a, a the, we built, well? uh, two practice facilities. One was with, in conjunction with Lions Clubs out in, I think it was called Etobicoke. That was the MasterCard Center. They actually built it. We were prepared to build it, but the city wanted to do it themselves. And I said to the mayor, we'll do it cheaper and faster. And I was proven right. So that one, we just contributed that we'll take a long-term lease on the thing. So you have certainty. And the very fact we were there attracted other people. The new Kia Center for football, uh, that was entirely paid by uh, Maple Leaf Sports. So what my question would be, are your personal values always aligned or were they always aligned with the values in your business? Was that important to you or was it necessary? Well, I I think I'm a real student of leadership and, and I learned in... I can tell you about 1983 that I really cottoned on to this vision of value stuff. And I don't think I ever thought about aligning them, but okay, so let, let's talk about Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment. Inspire your people. Well, I, I'd realized very early in my career that people made the difference. Yeah. That, you know, engaged, motivated, people that know what's going on, uh, they're recognized, they're better employees. So it's that's easy. That aligns with my philosophy. Excite every fan. I realized, well, you know, I, I was in marketing. You have to appeal to your customer. So that was very much part of my life. The customer is always right. Yeah. Philosophy. Uh, dedicated to your teams. That's really product quality. Yeah. And so, you know, I was always a quality person. And finally, one, uh, you know, be leaders in the community. You know, I like to say that I really didn't wake up to the fact that I should be a leader in the community because, you know, when I was, you know, my first three or four presidents, well, I guess Sky Dome, I was sure in the community, but I never really, really thought of the role I could play and the company should play in the community. At Maple Leaf Sports, it was much different. Mm-hmm. We spent a billion dollars and 95% of it was our own money, which is very not the way the NFL teams do it. You know, they take this money from the cities and the okay. states and stuff like that. 
And so we're doing all of this. We're bringing all these jobs, as you said earlier. People are coming and spending money. So the the economic impact to the city is very positive. The awareness when you bring an all-star game or a championship, the whole world is watching the city. And uh, then we also had a foundation. And, and so it was there that I started realizing that I had a city building value. Mm. And now, obviously, that's where I've you know, pivoted into that space since I left. Yeah, well, I mean, I built a, I helped build a, a small rink or two, or a yeah, that's right, you things, and yeah. and we even, uh, I remember, uh, we went to Tom and Selmy and said we should put on uh, a boardroom superstar sort of uh, competition where we get like bands from different companies to come and play an event. I think we ended up just doing it with our own mm-hmm. uh, people, but not only did we get to play for town hall meetings, of yep. course, which you talk about in the book. Thanks for mentioning me indirectly in the book, uh, <laughs> both books twice, by the way. Thanks for that. Play to Win was, uh, and I wasn't always in the band, of course, because it was, it was started before yeah. I got there, but, uh. Well, you came back from my retirement. Well, that's. <laughs> and played Coldplay cold songs. Yes. And, and uh, <laughs> when they said, would you like to come back? I'm like, of course. This was just something that not everybody gets to do. And, you know, that's, it leads me to a question I want to ask you, because you talk about thank you notes. Uh, a lot. <laughs> I still do them. Because you still do them. You Not think, as much. It's, now, handwritten thank you notes. Still bad handwriting, yes. Yeah, bad handwriting thank you notes. But you you would say maybe you've written, you used to write like maybe an average of three a day. Easily. Easily, right? And that this made the difference in your career and that it makes the difference, it would make the difference if just a couple of people did it, you know, if they're trying to get a job or Well, I, or uh, I still speak constantly at universities and I joke that I've told 10,000 university students that writing handwritten notes can break through the clutter and be the difference the end difference why you got the job and I also as so I'm standing up there in front of 300 at a time 150 at a time I tell them this it's as you remember it's one of the lessons in my book and yep. I say that it's the most analog lesson in my book <laughs> yeah. and I would tell them that and then I say and 1% of you will take me up on it because very few do. It's true. I mean, I, I think maybe part of it is because everybody's going paperless. So people don't, and people don't write much anymore. Exactly. But, but my question to you about that would be, could your thank you note concept be interpreted as just do something to stand out? Do something unique? Well, yeah, that's part of it. Absolutely. Break through the clutter. Like, could you just do something, like if you found something else, if thank you notes just aren't your thing, which seems to be the yeah. case for a lot of people. Yeah, is that is that really the idea there? Well, I, I think so, but but honestly, I, I believe I had a vice president hostess who said I don't need recognition. He was the one he's since passed away. He he was my best vice president, wonderful guy, Stu Karens. Loved him dearly and uh died way too young of cancer. And he said, I don't need recognition. He was he was older than me, he was kind of mm. cranky operations guy. And I said, No, no. Everybody wants recognition. So yeah, it breaks through the clutter. And I guess it breaks through the clutter because you're recognizing someone, you're thanking them. Mm-hmm. And, and now I'm not using it to get a job. You know, I had uh, a week ago, I had coffee with one of the city councilors, Anna Balio. If she hears this, she knows I slaughtered this. And she's <laughs> a, a wonderful counselor. And, and I really, I had been at a meeting on affordable housing and, and Anna was so impressive that I wrote her a note. Yeah. And then I had a medical at the Cleveland Clinic and my doctor is, uh, Margaret Campbell and she was awesome. So I wrote her a note. And so I still, I have note paper now for every, if you remember at Maple Leaf Sports, 
it was all of our logos. You had things made right. at, at every at, company. Yeah, at every company. Start, yeah, yeah, at Hostess, were... it was our three little munchies, and at Skydome. I remember the munchies. Yeah, the, the <laughs> roof opened, and the, the fireworks were coming out. And now I have one. I have my wife, Colleen, drew a silhouette of the city. And on the back, I've got the four values that I think are important for a livable city. And what, and what are those four values? Uh, I believe uh, a city needs to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs to be healthy. It needs to be inspiring. And by that, I mean libraries and, and arts and stuff. And it has to be inclusive for everyone, whether you're man, woman, old, young, gay, straight, person of color, not person of color, whatever religion disabled able-bodied so those are my four values and and if you follow me on social media and and my blogs and stuff you know that i constantly come back to those values and whatever city council is doing i measured against those four values can you hear that you know noise is noise to me like i just did a podcast uh with uh, stephen wayman uh from a uh, creditcardgenius.ca and we just did it all walking around uh the path in yorkville you know noises subway well you know it's really interesting so we live downtown and there's street cars and cabs and honking and lots of construction and we have neighbors who are always complaining about the noise you live downtown that, that's you know <laughs> go and live out in some pastoral farm that's it right we, we moved to hamilton and uh, we're on a busy street because we wanted to be in like we're 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 downtown people same with me you know at least at least for now who knows uh, how yeah. that's going to change but you know, that's, and you, you got to accept that stuff. You got to accept the bus is going to go by. You got to accept that there's people, right? It's the, it's the texture of the city. I, it's, it's great. You know, when I, when I was uh, working for the last uh, five or six years at uh, Live Nation, uh, I started thinking about my, my values. And uh, maybe, uh, maybe I missed it, but Live Nation doesn't have a clear uh, set of uh, vi- uh, vision and values as MLSC did, or, or at least they weren't like... If, if you're not clear on it, they probably did not. That's it. Or at least they do, and I'm not, I don't know Live Nation per se, but a lot of people create it. They put it in their annual report. They put a, a, a poster on the wall and that's it. That's it. And yeah. I, re- I realize that, that that's not good enough. I mean, especially after uh, reading your books, you're, you're probably right when you say like, I don't know, probably everybody who's ever worked at MLSE, while you were there anyway, would be able to recite at least three or all four of the the values. I I constantly, I'm still in contact with a lot of MLSE alumni and some of the people there. If you recall, I did a leadership course. Patty Ann was a graduate from my leadership course. uh, And and one of the things I asked him, and then I said, okay, take out a piece of paper and write down our vision and values. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Everyone knew them. In fact, if you remember, we did an attitude survey every year or two, and we asked two questions. Do you know our vision and values? 92% said yes. Do you believe in them or follow them? And it was like 93% said yes. So, you know, it. I, I'm not saying it was perfect, but man, we, uh, as you know, we built everything around vision and values. Yeah, and and you have to you have to be aligned with them, and and I, I realized that too, right? Um, and so you know, I just I started going. I went to career counseling, and I yeah. was like, you know, what are my what are my core values, right? Very and, good, and I think good exercise to go through. Everybody Everyone needs, should do that because, the, like you said in the book, people could go to a company and realize I, I don't align with this, and this is why this is not the place for me. And you don't want to find that out when they get fired or just like feel like you don't belong. You know, the only problem today is, uh, realistically, it's so tough getting jobs. Part of my, my pitch to university students is find out what the company values are and yes. hopefully align with them. 
and you know don't take them if they don't align with them but if that's they've got a student debt of thirty thousand dollars yeah and that's the only job they've got to do it i i said but i predict you will have angst you will have a disconnect that it won't it won't be good for you well what tends to happen which i found out is is uh maybe you have 10 values and uh the most important ones uh, maybe one of them is is met at a job. Maybe half of your overall values are met, and that's why you can stay there. And especially when you first start, right? You can you you can be okay with that. Yeah. But uh, you know, after twelve years of of being in the in the music business uh, in live entertainment, I, I started to think more about what it is that I really really want. And I was doing it in a certain way, but I wasn't really helping people in the way that I wanted. Now, I wanted to get more on the ground floor. I wanted to be more creative. Creativity is innovation. Creativity could be a value of a company. It can, uh, um, and you know, you could argue I could have done all of this within Live Nation, but I had so many other things I wanted to do, and also a whole bunch of different things that didn't quite, you know, because a company is a company. You're doing one thing. You can maybe branch out a little bit, but if you have like personally, I have a lot of different skills. You know, musician. You know, I'm a I'm an Excel specialist, right? <laughs> uh, you know, bookkeeping and uh, and personal finance, and apparently I can do a podcast. You know, these all kind of. I was like, what could I do? And I, I'm like, I, I need to do this. I need to do my own thing. And the only downside uh, uh, to it is you lose that steady paycheck. You know, and then you can you try to make it up yourself. So what I would say is, you're right that maybe not all your values get fulfilled at a company. Mm -hmm. Let's say you want to be, you're very creative and the company's more, it's not, that's not what they do. Really. Well, somebody's deciding what you do. Yeah. Sort of. But right. you fulfill it outside because you're in bands. Yes. Where the problem is, is if the company has bad values, mm. if they're yeah. a toxic employer, they, they sexually harass, they cheat, they price fix, then then now, if you're an honest person who doesn't believe in that, you're, you're, you've got a conflict. And, you know, John Stewart, the comedian said, you know, someone said, value is not a value until it costs you something. Mm. But what he says, if you're not following your values, they're just hobbies. So, so if you're a really honest person and believe in quality and fairness and whatever, and you're working for a place that, that cheats, on their product quality, doesn't fill the bags quite as full. Mm. Uh, they're, they're just racist. Just the bosses all yell and, and whatever. And that's not you. There's where you go. Boy, I need the paycheck, but, and then there's a slippery slope where you seem like, look at, look what's happened in the United States right now. The Trump's got all these horrible, horrible values. Yeah. And, and, there's a lot of people in the Republican Party. I don't. I would never vote Republican, but there's a lot of people in the Republican Party that are compromising their values. They are. They, they're 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 cowardly. They they they're letting this guy do all of the things that he's doing, and um, that's pretty bad. Because it's not enough to speak out, right? They're afraid to speak out. But but also they got this guy in power, and and he he throw he wields a very big stick. If if you're not constantly bowing down to him, he'll get rid of you. Like it takes a it takes a while to make that decision. It does too, and, and it's really easy for me to, you know, I I I like to think I live my values. I understand what my values are. Then, frankly, for twenty nine years, I got a chance to say what the values of the company were. So, like, why wouldn't I align them? Of course. But I I you know I never worked for a company that was toxic, that was awful. And if I was a young person with $30,000 of school debt or a house mortgage or, you know, my, my wife just had a new baby, well, how, how good would I be on saying, 
I, you can't work here because it doesn't align with my values. Well, this is why I always recommend people have, you know, an emergency fund, but also what I like to call an FU fund. Yeah. So if you do have a toxic Most company don't, don't. or a toxic boss, yeah. you can say, FU, I'm going to go do my own thing. You can even take a break if you don't have, because sometimes, and I know the feeling, you just got to, you just got to go. You got to go. And it's not necessarily because of any specific thing that anybody has done. It's just been building up for a while. I don't belong here. Something's telling me I don't belong here. So, so the key to that is, is, uh, inertia, right? that you're that's building up and it's time to go you know you're being passed over maybe the place is fine but it's not the place for you yeah you know, exactly it's it's that was my case it's just fine not place the, but yeah, just not and, the place and, for me um you know they say that about 70 80 percent of the people who just choose to leave actually go to a better place so it's that inertia that you're busy you're working long hours you you get home to your family or or whatever awaits you at home, and and that's all consuming. And getting that, getting over that inertia to um, to investigate, to do research, to make calls, to network, to go see a headhunter. A lot of people just stay in that job, and they wake up six years later, and they're still in the same rut they've been. But they've got the paycheck coming in, so it's easy for me to say that. Uh, that people should get over that inertia. I did. I mean, I plotted, I wanted to run a basketball team. So when the Skydome job came up, I went after it, you know, and then I prepared, I did a lot of things to prepare for maybe someday running a sports team. So I made my moves. I never got fired. You know, it's, it'd stay. And, but I was always figuring what I was going to do next. Well, and did you build your, FU fund or emergency fund early. So when you when you first, uh, so I guess what, what would have been the first one? The the uh, thing uh, for selling the Jello and okay. So I I left there in 1985, and but a headhunter approached me. Do you run a one run Pillsbury? Okay. And then you know once I got rid of my mortgage. Yeah. Okay. Once I got rid of my mortgage and I had no debt, I can't say I had a lot of money in the bank. And I think the stats are very few Canadians have a, that FU fund. Well, how long did it take to pay the mortgage off? 10 years? Probably not. No, not. Maybe five or six. Yeah, okay. My wife had a good job too sure. at the time. I was married to Trudy Egan at the time. And, and I was getting bonuses. My bonuses all went to the mortgage. Yeah, so this is a good point. You took advantage. Uh, you know, I had uh, uh, Sean Cooper who wrote Burn Your Mortgage. He mm-hmm. paid his mortgage off in, in three years. And he's, and I he's probably did five. 31, right? Oh, and okay. I, I don't know how old you were. How old would you have uh, I would have been probably early 40s. He lived in the basement and rented out the top, which you probably... Okay, I didn't go that far. You probably could appreciate that, <laughs> if, even if you wouldn't do it. He took advantage of all the early payment options. Yep. And he actually, I always did he that. structured it so that he would have as many as possible. Yeah. Lump I did that sums too. all the way. So, yep. so this is, this is sort of the key. And then, so you had your house. Now you have a house. And you think that was the, the foundation? Well, I think the fact that I didn't have, and you know, I was pretty confident. I was already, when, when I left to go Skydome, I'd already been a president of two companies. I'm a uh, young guy. True. I've got, I've got a track record. When I decided I was going to leave the consumer products industry, I was approached by two advertising agencies to be the president. I was uh, actually negotiating at the same time to be president of CTV. Uh, a good friend of mine, John Cassidy, ultimately took that job because I took the Skydome job. So, you know what? Jump, it, it wasn't a, when I was jumping from that, it wasn't because I had FU money. I didn't have debt. 
my wife was making good money and I knew that was very employable. So what the hell? Yeah, but I hadn't failed yet. If I'd failed yet, maybe I'd go, oh, good, the second one, do I dare fail again? Well, that's it, but you'd be surprised. Like, I mean, and this is famous for doctors, right? Making all the money, but it's all leveraged. Everything is, there's debt out, you know, they're paying so many, so many monthly payments in, in debt. Uh, even though the money's coming in, but where is it going? They got boats, they got planes, they got whatever. Well, my f- f- financial advisor said to me one day, said without giving away any secrets, said Richard, you'd be amazed at how many people you see out there in Rosedale with the with the yeah. cottage up at in you know up up north and driving a BMW and a whatever, and the kids are in private school. They are leveraged to the eyeballs, mm-hmm. and it's never been me. So you you. Because you have properties in various places, yeah. right? Yep. Maybe you built up a, a emergency fund at some point uh, as you as you went along. Well, what I did was I, I started getting a portfolio. Okay. I had a financial advisor probably since about 1978. Would you have put it in mutual funds at that time? Uh, it or, wasn't or as strategic. Um, you know, I can't remember. I, I did some stupid things. I got involved with a MERB. What was, yeah, what? I think. Well, I don't even know that uh, term. Yeah, it was. Is it B for Bond? There, there. I got some film credits. Okay, yeah, that was a Canadian films. thing. I, I think. You know what? Yeah. They, it was very tactical, and ultimately, I went away from the person because, and 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 I really felt that they were on both sides of the street. They're making money on selling the Merb. It was multiple unit rental something or other. Okay, and okay. I bought a Merb in Calgary. It was not a good investment, and I did the film thing. I did a couple of things, and uh, it was it was boom, 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 boom. There was no strategy. It was really a sales business more back then, and yeah, and they, they were, were just selling products, whatever, making both sides of it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, then I I I went with uh, Burgundy. Uh, that was very conscious. A lo- uh, I I phoned around a lot of my CEO friends, and they like Burgundy. I'm still with Burgundy to this day. They're very, very well known. I'm not sure they're, but they they have a, a whack of my, not all of my money, but they have not even my biggest share of my money. But uh, you know, I've stuck with them, and they they're a little more aggressive. And then six years ago, I did a did a, basically an RFP. And you were joking earlier; not everyone yeah. can do that. I <laughs> did a request for a proposal to four firms. Yeah, told them where Colleen and I were at. And tell me what you do. And you know one question I asked all of them? Tell me why you're not Bernie Madoff. Yeah, exactly. Because like, holy... I mean, if I was to lose my uh, wealth now, I'm 71 years old, there's no one's going to say, well, well, come back and be the president of the Raptors. That's not going to happen. I'm working at... I, even with my resume, I probably could consult and make okay money. Yeah, but... But I, I could be working yeah. at Starbucks. You know, I could be I could be a hell of a barista. Well, it's I mean, generally, I, I mean, I don't know if that's exactly true for you, but that's it is a good lesson uh, for people because there are times in your life where you're going to be making money, mm-hmm. and there are other times when you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you're you're relatively lucky, mm-hmm. but there are people. Problem oh, much yeah. younger than you. They run if depending on what you know. You you you, well, you smoke for a little bit in the U.S. I think some incredible percentage of bankruptcies in the U.S. are because of a major health problem. Yes. Because they have such a bad health system. People think they're going to be great yeah. as they get older, right? And, and, and uh, people think they're invincible, right? Yep. People don't get insurance. All of this stuff, it's easy. It's, it's attainable. People don't put money away in savings when they have it because they're not thinking of the future then. You know what else? They're not seeing a doctor regularly. They're not seeing a dentist regularly. They're not seeing an eye doctor. Still, 
I saw an eye doctor yesterday. I, I, I see a dentist in a month. I had my executive medical uh, two months ago. And, you know, it's, it's all of those things. You say, what has that got to do with a financial plan? Well, I mean, are you taking care of yourself? I try to work out every day. Yeah, wellness, it it's, includes financial wellness. Yep. Uh, so you got your mental health, you got your physical health, you got your finances. I'm sure I'm missing one. Mm -hmm. But they all work together, right? If you're eating out at, at McDonald's every day, uh, well, you're, well, you're probably shortening your life, but it's also costing you way more than it would to make a, a plate of pasta. Yep. And all you got to do is learn a couple of skills, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's very similar to, to, to business, right? You know, you have the skills, you get paid for them. Well, if you just learn how to read instructions in a recipe, you can make a wonderful meal for yourself that would cost you. You know, you were, you were, we were talking about how people are going, uh, kids, you know, I mean, in their twenties, or going to the restaurants in Yorkville, about a hundred bucks, hundred, two hundred bucks, maybe if they if there's drinks. I in can't there. imagine what uh, uh, what their credit cards look like. And they they could go. They could Other learn how to This themselves. is an area, you know, the catchment area around is is wealthy homes, and it's quite possible that uh, their parents are paying for that. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, they're saying this will be the first generation where the kids won't have it as good as their parents. You know, and a lot of these kids will probably get the family home sure. and maybe the family cottage, but maybe they've got two or three brothers and sisters and all of a sudden they get one third of it and they they really have no financial skills because someone's been paying all their credit cards. And I'm not saying that's the norm, no, but, but there it, are it's a bunch common. of, there, there's enough of them out there. And the, the point is that it sure looks like. This generation, millennials, and I'm a big fan of millennials. I think the criticism is far, is, is not warranted. <laughs> they only eat avocado they, toast. You know, it's a very normal distribution again. There's going to be stars, there's going to be dogs, and there's going to be a bunch in the middle. It's and, true. Uh, and uh, I had multiple job offers in 1970. They don't get that at school today. My debt was $1,200. Yeah. They're $30,000. I went to full-time jobs. There was no talk about you're on contract. Yeah. The, everybody's starting on you, contract. I got full benefits. All of those things for a great portion of the po the new population, the millennials, won't have that. Sure, there's going to be rich kids of rich parents that are going to be fine. But, you know, the interesting thing, it better be fine because they may be picking up horrible life skills and no financial acumen at all because they never paid a, a credit card. And social media um, is to blame for a little bit of this because you get, you don't post a photo on Instagram of you eating a can of tuna, you know. In or your, McDonald's. In your, uh, Unless it's a bunch of your buds and you're having a good well, time. Yeah. And, and uh, so everybody sees only the top-notch yeah. stuff, right? Oh, I went to Cancun this weekend and all that stuff. And, and they feel like they got to keep up. And there's like, you know, people who have the frugality gene, I'll call it a, a gene because it feels like it's like something that's built into you or it's mm -hmm. not. Uh, they're, they're all, they're very lucky. I feel like they're lucky because they can resist all of this. So there's an interesting ad that drives me crazy. And I don't know that, that these people, these, and they show on the ad, these people have a card and they go buy on this card and they get money back. So they spend a thousand dollars and they get a hundred dollars back. And at the end of the year, they say, look what I made. This Ugh. is the line. Look what I made. Yeah. Wait a second. You, you, what you got was you got money off of something like 10% off and you get a check back, but you still spent 90%. 
And it just drives me crazy. This woman is saying, look what I made. No, you didn't make that. The, uh, the similar, uh, the uh, comparison to that is, uh, all the free things you get when you open a bank account. You get free this, free that, free this, but you're paying twelve, thirteen dollars a month. It's not free if you pay for it. I, I write blogs about this all the time <laughs> because you're right. People are saying free. Well, you can get a free bank account, uh, Tangerine, uh, whatever PC Financial yep. is called now. That's the free one. The one where you get free transfers or free debit transactions, but you're paying a monthly, it's not free. Yeah, I think the, the financial lesson there is to really look at the whole table of what you're getting and what you're paying for. And, uh, and I must admit, you know, I, I, I don't, I have a silver credit card, uh, American Express. I know it costs me something and. But you know that. Yeah. That's a thing. You know, and you know how much the interest is going to be if you ever leave anything on yeah. there. But you actually probably have to pay it off every month. I you think do. It's an Amex requirement. But it's a, it's what you don't know. Like if you want to pay fees, if you want 2.5% mutual funds, yeah. go ahead. If you know what that means, I just want to make sure everybody knows what it all means. It's right? Due, it's, it's due diligence. When you go buy a company... You do your due diligence. Exactly. And, and frankly, if you're good, you do your due diligence on the job you're interviewing. Mm-hmm. If you're hiring someone, you do the due diligence on the person you're hiring. Uh, it, it's What is due diligence? It's, it's the diligence you need to do uh, to make the right decisions. And, and uh, so you, you have uh, your famous quote, the gross is not the net. Yes. I never saw the sign that you would bring in because I think that was before my time. Mm-hmm. Maybe you just had it in your office. I did. I, I ended up giving it to Ian Clark when I left. Yes. And he gave it to, he gave it to one of the guys in finance. Now, the interesting thing is, so I was at the library, the central library last night. I'm a huge fan of our library system. It's the best in the world. Mm-hmm. And they're doing a big fundraiser and, and I always buy tickets and I, my, Colleen and I have a foundation mm-hmm. and they are one of the recipients of money. I sponsor a youth hub in uh, the Sandhurst uh, library uh, down on Dundas and Bathurst. And, um, and so the, the, the young, uh, the young woman who is the president of the foundation, I had dinner with her on Friday night and we were talking about sponsorships and raising money. And I said, okay, your ticket sales were how much? What was the net? Yeah. You know, what were the, and, and so we said, she said, oh, it's not great enough. So last night I went into my collection and I found a bobblehead. The bobblehead yeah, is gross. Yeah. It's not the net. And I, I went to the, the, this reception to hear about this new fundraiser and I had a gift bag for it. And she says, what's that? I goes, open it up. And I gave her a bobblehead and I said, you can teach your staff <laughs> that the gross is not the net. And she laughed and now it'll be in her office. Yeah. So, so just to, to fill everybody in. So uh, when you retired, uh, at, what was the year? Was it 13 or 14? Uh, January 1st, 2012. 12. Oh, wow. I even jumped ahead. Okay. Um, so 2012, it just, uh, just after I, uh, I had left, actually. Yes. Yeah. Probably about six months is yeah. when your retirement party was. And there were hundreds. So how many hundreds of bobbleheads? 600. 600. Because this is this thing that we would do for players, right? Yes, players yeah. would have everybody. Hopefully everybody knows what a bobblehead is. You yeah. just hit the I thing and do. the springy head goes. Well, not everybody has one. You can have one made of yourself if you go yes, online. You yeah. But uh, so Richard, uh, the hundreds, and uh, uh, he's holding up a sign and says the gross is not the net. And so what that specifically means is that like, let's just take your salary, for example, yeah. right? People talk about their gross salary all the time. I don't know why anybody ever talks about their gross salary. You never get to keep that. Yeah. 
unless you get all your taxes back somehow. Yeah. And the CBP and EI, you know, unless you're those fund holders. Oh God, in the U.S., they pay, only pay fifteen percent tax. Okay, I and mean, we pay, you know, close to fifty percent. Sure. People in Denmark pay sixty-three percent. So why do we still quote? I That's mean, an interesting point. I yeah. mean, why do we still quote? Like, if I I want to know how much I'm taking home now. Of course, it it, it differs. Maybe I have other side income, yeah. and you maybe there's and maybe you, there's deductions. You got, you, you got stuff you're paying. Off. I get that it's comparable, but it was the same argument for this is why we quote uh, airline airline costs this way. Mm-hmm. But uh, still, like, why wouldn't you tell me all the other costs I'm going to pay? Whether it's comparable or not, I well, want to know. That's yeah, and you want to know, but a lot of people don't do their due diligence. That's, and, yeah, and there's a you know lack of financial literacy. Yes, and uh, you know I, I graduated with a BCom. I took tax. I got an A and a tax course in in my final year. I did my taxes for a while. Now I don't. I pay someone to do them. But uh, yeah, that financial literacy. And that that's really what it comes down to is that people are surprised. Like, you know, if somebody says you're making $50,000, it's not $50,000. Yeah. And so when you're doing your budget and you're like, oh, I make this much a month, it really doesn't come down to that. So that... So for in the business sense, people would come to you with like, these are what our sales are and this is what it, but if your, if your sales are a hundred dollars and your costs are, are 99, uh, if you don't talk about the costs, there's a big difference between a dollar and a hundred. So I worked in the consumer products industry for 19 years and we were really taught financial literacy. We had profit loss statements for each of our brands. So if I was the brand manager of Jello, I knew what the sales were and I knew what the product costs were and I knew what administration costs were and I knew what the marketing costs and sales costs were and I got down to an operating profit and then from that you'd take your interest depreciation uh, and, and, and amortization off that so we knew all of that stuff when I got to Maple Leaf Sports I realized that our guys in, you know, Dave Hopkinson's division in sponsorships and, and the people in merchandise sales and, and, uh, the people in food and beverage really didn't focus on margins. We focused on how much money we're making, but, you know, they, the guys that come to me in sponsorships and say, or let's say, you know, the price of beer goes up $6 a keg and they say, well, we got to pass on $6 of cost. No, you have to put on more because you're protecting your, dollar margin, but you're eroding your pro- your percentage margin. So yeah. I really started saying, when you show me that we've done a new sponsorship with Bell, show me how much else we're, you know, we're giving away t-shirts at a game. We're going to do something for their charity. I mean, there's cost to that. If we'd sell it for a million dollars, we never netted a million dollars. There were costs to it. And I wanted to know, make sure the guys knew what the costs were. So when they'd start showing me, here's our new deal with Bell, it was no longer just the gross. They had to show me the whole thing. And and that, our profits really took, when people started focusing on the net, that our, our margins started going up in all three areas. To take that to, to personal finance, it's like, not only do you start with your net salary, mm-hmm. Is that your net? Now you gotta you gotta think about what your costs are for Absolutely. living. So if you say, okay, I make this much a month, but then you go get an, an apartment or a condo that that costs more than that, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? So you have to you have to think about you know the two options if you don't have enough money or or, uh, or spend less, yep, or make more money, or yeah, go go get a second job, second job, I, I side hustle, yeah. I'm a young uh, brand manager at, at Colgate. And uh, there's a young fella who was a year ahead of me. He went and bought a new yellow convertible. 
And he went into the boss and said, I've just bought a new convertible. It's cost me. I need a raise. <laughs> no. No, that's not. So that's a... <laughs> I, I still remember that. Like, no, works, I, I, I probably. Good for him. I, for I trying. probably hadn't thought about ever doing that. Yeah. And if I had, I'd like to think I was smart enough to say, oh, that doesn't. I mean, that's the same thing. I, you just had, I'm a young person. My wife just had a baby. I should get paid more. No. No. That's that's tough, right? Because um, and that, and that's the reason you should have some money put aside. Family, you know, life changes, health, as we talked about. Everything changes your circumstance. So, like, the biggest lesson is just like take care in business. You never know where the ups and downs are going to be. So, you want to keep some money, a contingency. But right? I guess we talked about this. And I know you stress that, and I agree a hundred percent. But I think the last time I I read about it, and I know it's out there in the public domain. The great majority of people don't have enough in the bank to cover like one month of expenses. It's it's true. It's really high. It's popular with millennials. People are relying on their lines of credit and credit cards, which is the worst because yeah. the the worst thing you want to do is be like, I don't have a job and now I have to go into debt and now I don't even have income to service that debt. I don't see how that's an equivalent. People are like, I don't need an emergency fund. I got a line of credit. Yeah, the line of credit, which creates monthly payments and interest. So, like, that logic makes no sense to me. It's good. You know, I've, I've got a line of credit. I, I may have used it to bridge a house or something like that. In the short term. I always had it, but, I like, I never wanted to use it. And and you're right. It's 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 not the long-term solution. It's just more debt. It's it's uh, it's all short-term. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't want to get into payday loans, but they're the worst. Oh, course. they're the worst. They're Absolutely. the worst. Uh, I've I've done a do the of, math on those. Oh, it's it's six hundred percent interest yeah, it's, annually. It's it's usurious. Is it's, that the word? I think it's it is. Yeah, well, yeah. they created the Payday Loan Act specifically so that people wouldn't refer to it as as usurious. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's debt is. I don't know. People like to use it, but people need to realize that they're not invincible. And so, if you get into debt. You need to make sure that you understand that if something happens to you and you lose your income uh, generating ability, that debt is still going to be there. If you are not in debt and you lose your job, all you have to do is worry about how to survive, yeah. not how to service a debt. So your your dream was to own an NBA. To fr- run. To run. So yeah. not own, yes, because yeah. that's, that, that that's takes another, tons of capital. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. But, yeah. Mind you, in, when I first wrote that down, I think probably an NBA team was worth $10, $12 million. Okay. And so, now it's worth $2 yeah. billion. Dollars. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a good story because it wasn't an overnight thing. This is like... 29 years. Yeah, 29 years. So in the moment I wrote down that dream to realize it was 29 years. And 96? 96. November 96. November 96, you became president of the Raptors, which was then bought by MLSE. And then you became president of MLSE. And then all the other things. And so, yeah, you can read all about this. Dream Job is a great... I think it's a great book. It's because it's a story. It's your story. It's an autobiography. And, And yeah, and you have... Maybe it's just the industries that you've been in, but you have lots of very interesting stories. I mean, teachable point of view. But uh, you can read the book or all that, and then the second book, which wasn't supposed to happen but did, which we might be saying about the third book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm is, not saying that anymore because I, I got it here. Yeah, exactly. I got 21 leadership lessons here. Yeah, no, did yeah, did, exactly. Just leave it open. Leave it yep. open for another one. But uh, 21 leadership lessons is great because I think, as you say, maybe at the end you can flip around. And you don't have to read certain things in order, especially the things no, about that's the, the book. The, it's not a cover to cover. It's not like reading Stephen King. Yeah. You could open it up and read, you know, lesson seven, rest, lesson 12. I, I, I really aimed it at millennials 
because I heard the millennials ask me the same questions over and over again, other than whether I was going to write another book. And yeah. so I figured, and I'm a big fan of millennials again, that I said, maybe I've got a story. And you know, it's really interesting. I speak at universities all the time. And here I am standing in front of them. I'm the age of their grandparents. Mm. Yet I, I still have ability to resonate with them. Yeah, you're not the typical grand, the grandparent. <laughs> I'd like I to mean, think that. you know, because I mean, it's not long since you've uh, retired, but you're not retired. This is not. The no, my brain's very active. Retirement, exactly. My learning, you know, I, I'm about to sign up for a three. I, I uh, well, in October, I took a three day course in Pittsburgh on climate change yes. with Al Gore. Yes, I, I, I. So I did that and heard about and, that on a podcast. Yeah, in yeah. the end of February, I just I'm going to change my schedule to take a three day. Uh, attend a three-day course on safe streets okay because i'm in you know i i when i was thinking about running for mayor i wanted to go to copenhagen i'm a huge fan of what they're doing in copenhagen and i talked to the uh, consul general and he said what what do you want to do when you're there i said boom 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 i said i want to learn about vision zero which is safe streets initiative and he said oh well we do that but you should go to sweden because they're the ones who invested mm. I, well that's easy to say i'm in copenhagen well mamo sweden is across Malmo's right there. 33 minutes away. Yeah, it's away. like next door. Yeah. And the Vision Zero creator met me in Malmo okay. to talk about Vision Zero. So now I'm a big fan of Vision Zero. We have Vision Zero here in Toronto. It's a complete charade. I mean, you know, what do they say? A vision without action is a daydream. Action without a vision is a nightmare. nightmare. And yeah. we're, we're a daydream. And so they're going to be a three-day course on Vision Zero. I'm going to spend 500 bucks attending it. And people say, why do you want to do that? Because I'm still curious. I've still got a brain that's active as hell. And I'd like to make this city better. Well, the way, the way that I see it is, is you've taken all of your CEO energy mm-hmm. and, and you've, it's all transferred now into this city building or you know, making the city mm-hmm. a better place you know, for bettertoronto.ca. It's all evident. In every, you know, in, it like, all applies. Like you're, all, of your, all of your tweets are they're very educated comments, right? It's like you're, you're holding the city to task, right? <laughs> well, I, I marked the mayor uh, and, and I'm seeing John in March 5th. He, he invited me to come in and talk to him. Okay. <laughs> I can't be his favorite guy. I mean, today, I mean, there's this whole thing on uh, the Scarborough subway and they're going to know the newest uh, estimate of cost before the October 22nd election but they're not going to make them public. And I, I disagree with that. That's, that's a $3.4 billion cost that's probably going to be $5 billion before they finish. And, that, and, and the mayor campaigned on that. So we need to know. We you know, need to hold them accountable. We need transparency. So that was one of the things I did today. When I, when I do social media, I, I have a friend who passes, he just passes me shit. And like a lot of it's empty calorie stuff. I'm really, I'll send out a joke about puppies or comedy or I'll do that. But when I tweet, even if I retweet something, I think about it and try to add value to it. Sure. I'll do a little bit of research. Even if it's only 12 words of research, I'll say, okay, do you know that the statistic on this is 63% of Canadians believe that? That's the kind of stuff I do. So my brain's still pretty wired. You said, John Tory, maybe you're not his favorite guy, but... Um... It's just like you and Robin Brudner. You you might disagree, but you know that people need people to well, di- you know, disagree and, or to and, challenge. You need and, a challenger. So you remember Robin, and she could be a very challenging person. And and uh, you know, and and what I said about her in my book was, I asked Robin why she, as a subordinate, yeah. executive vice president, sure. not a, 
not a not low a, level. Oh, yeah, high level. Why she had the confidence of challenging me. And she said, because I know you'll listen to me. Exactly. And so one of the things that I have in my book is truth to power. It's the contrary thinking. And I think people have to hear that. And, uh, you know, the mayor is the mayor. Uh, but I'm a great believer that we, if that, that person, just as I was challenged by a board or by the fans of the Leafs or employees, that goes with the job. And I'm better for listening to that challenge. Absolutely. Better for it. And so, uh, yeah, I give the mayor a few shots. And, 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 and uh, <laughs> I did an interview here on CTV and, uh, uh, and about the same sitting arrangement we have. And, and the young one was interviewing, it was being filmed and, and where I told him I was not going to run for mayor. And I said, listen, I understand the mayor's got a tough job. And, uh, and I said, listen, when I was running Maple Leafs, everyone thought they could do the job better. And mm. I'm sure everyone thinks they can do the job or a lot of people think they can do your sure, job better. Sure. I know that it's very tough. I don't know all the things that go with the job. The next day, John emailed me and thanked me for that. But that said, I still would say all those same things to you, to, to, to the mayor, but that doesn't give him a free pass. And he needs to hear contrary thinking. Yeah, I think everybody does. Yep. So for bettertoronto.ca, uh, and also you can uh, find Richard on Twitter. Where, where else? Well, I'm supposed to be, I have an Instagram account that's not active. Sometimes I send stuff to Facebook, but really my website's pretty Website, active. and, and uh, I'll put all the links in the yeah. show notes. And uh, this was great, Richard. Well, Bo, nice seeing you. I'm uh, very happy to, to know you, even though we didn't spend a lot of time working together. I always felt that I knew you, though. You know, I tried yeah. to know everyone's name at Maple Leaf Sports, and uh, and and I don't know, maybe because you were part of the band, and and I loved the entertainment group under Patty Ann Tarleton. Uh, you guys did so well, and I didn't have to worry about you at all. And you know, I joked that uh, when we, you know, that Patty Ann put the E in uh, Maple we were, Leaf Sports we were Entertainment, the e. yeah, yeah, and it, and I thought it was a mistake when when they revised the Vision of Values after I left, they dropped the E. They did, eh? They did, yeah. And no, it was uh, it was important. It's an important part of the year. Sixty concerts a year. It's probably twenty million net profit a year with food and beverage and everything. It's it's why sweet holders buy uh, often buy. The, yes, they want to see the Raptors and the Leafs, but they want to see who you know uh, Bon Jovi and yeah, YouTube. all the ones that are coming through. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, it was very important. Well, uh, we always felt valued yeah. by, by you. You know, if, if well, Patty uh, was a great champion of it. Well, okay. thanks, thanks, Richard, and uh, hopefully we can do this again. Well, Bo, thank you for uh, inviting me to be on your podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. It would mean a lot to me, and it only takes a few seconds. For the show notes and any links from the episode, head over to my website, investwisely.ca. And while you're there, please feel free to send me a message on my contact page. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Personal Finance Show. I'll be back with a new episode next week featuring Megan Nobrega from Carrot Rewards.